So there is no major country in the world which can say that there is no social hierarchy, that there is no social oppression. That is the, that is how it is. So so one could say all societies, all civilizations, all religions have failed, all countries have failed, dismantle everything. Then what, what happens? What happens is you have anarchy, you have a vacuum of power, a vacuum of any system, and this is a recipe for irresponsible people to take over the vacuum. If India fell apart because all the structures were destroyed, it is not that there'll suddenly be Dalits running the country. It will be that there'll be mischief makers from our neighborhood coming and taking over, and the Dalits will also become slaves like anybody else. So if you destroy each other uh, because somebody says to X that Y is your enemy, and, and they have oppressed you, you should overthrow them. It is not that X will start becoming the ruler, you'll destroy each other. Namaste. Greetings on behalf of the Campus Law Center and the Bharat Book Club, an initiative of Historical India. We welcome you all to the university book launch of Snakes in the Ganga, Breaking India 2.0, followed by conversations with Rajiv Malhotra, sir. The Bharat Book Club, an initiative of Historical India, is a forum for students and scholars who share an enthusiasm for readership and deliberation of ideas. Based in the University of Delhi, the club aims at reviving the culture of reading and research. From hosting book launches to introducing and reintroducing literature, publishing book reviews, enhancing bibliographic research to initiating novel bibliophile endeavors, forge the essence of Bharat Book Club. Historical India is a community-based digital wiki platform stimulating an exclusive discourse on multidisciplinary history. It's a platform where one can create and edit wiki articles, ensuring that this discourse reaches the masses by tracking the dynamics of search engine optimization. Almost one third article at Historical India appears in the top five searches in various engines. It also aims to serve as a platform for historical deliberation beyond the digital space. Snakes in the Ganga is the most recent intervention of Rajiv Ji. It is a brilliant exposition of the threats that Bharatiya civilization today contends with. Not only has it brought to the light the intellectual foundation and modest operandi of the US-inspired work culture, but has also called out the sinister international nexus of academic institution. We are sure that the discussions that follow shall provide us all with profound insight, a motivation to go through the work and to equip ourselves with intellectual and organizational tool to face these new challenges. We salute the Supreme who is in the light in the lamp that brings auspiciousness, prosperity, good health, the abundance of wealth and destruction of intellect's enemy. The ritual of lamp lightning is a symbol of positivity and optimism, and therefore sacred before beginning any event. In light of that, we would now like to invite our guest, Rajiv Malhotra, sir, 
author and public intellect on civilizational studies, Mr. Rahul Shivshankar, sir, editor-in-chief, Times Now, Professor Alka Chawla, ma'am, professor-in-charge, Campus Law Center, Professor Abanti Bhattacharya, ma'am, Department of East Asian Studies, University of Delhi, who is also the mentor of Bharat Book Club, and Dr. Vikas Verma, sir, head of Department History, Ramjas College, Delhi University, who is also the mentor of Historical India on the stage for Deep Prajwalan. And with that, uh, now the most awaited moment has arrived, the launch of the magnificent piece of work by Rajiv Malhotra sir, Snakes in the Ganga, Breaking India 2.0, a book for which a founding faculty fellow at the University of Austin has said that once in a generation, a book comes along that has the possibility of changing the course of the civilization. I request Rajiv Malhotra sir and our dignitaries to unwrap the most awaited book of our time. Now I would request Rajiv Malhotra sir to please gift a copy of his book to the Bharat Book Club Library on behalf of the Blue Ink Publications and I request the historical mentor, Professor Vikas Verma sir, to receive the book on behalf of the Bharat Book Club. Now I would request Professor Alka Chavla ma'am, Professor in charge of the Campus Law Center to please deliver the welcome address. Good afternoon everyone. Uh, well, I never thought I'll get so emotional. Before I begin my welcome address, I thought I must tell you this because while I was climbing up, I suddenly felt like so because I talked to him in person just before coming for this welcome address. All right, a very good afternoon to all of you and a very, very warm welcome to Mr. Rajiv Malhotra, author of the book, Snakes in Ganga, Breaking India 2. You know, the title is so interesting. We'll come to the title later. Warm welcome to Mr. Rahul Shivshankar, Editor-in-Chief, Times Now, Professor Abanti Bhattacharya, Dr. Vikas Verma, Dr. Anju Tikku, Professor-in-Charge, Law Center One, Professor Gunjan Gupta, all our dear faculty members here, and dear students, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we at Campus Law Center, we are overwhelmed to organize this panel discussion in collaboration with Bharat Bookhouse. We all know that Campus Law Center is a premier institution which has produced great luminaries, judges of the Supreme Court. At the moment, I think there are six judges in the sitting high court, uh, which are six from Campus Law Center, which is a huge number. The Chief Justice and the Law Minister are from Campus Law Center. So we've also produced great uh, political leaders, bureaucrats, authors, and so on and so forth. I cannot give you the entire list. It'll take days. Uh, we are engaged in initiatives, various initiatives and collaborations with an ultimate goal of holistic development of its students. So the question is, 
why are we here bharat book house one can understand historians one can understand but why campus law center why have you all gathered here why is it important for us to discuss about a book i wouldn't call it the book just one book and we are all here to discuss what is in it that makes it so significant so relevant a dozen years ago rajiv malhotra ji wrote you know that published that book which is breaking india i would call it 1.0 and now we have breaking india 2.0 this is a book which had in fact created a revolution amongst the uh, you know the socio legal thinkers the political thinkers it's basically because in his very unique and magnificent way he has discussed various points which i am not going to deal with but one of them was the caste system which i think he will surely touch upon uh, both of them while they while the panel discussion is on the title i was thinking of why this title you know snakes in ganga and i found out because i kept on thinking what could it be and i actually whatever i thought was what i found from the videos that i saw sir that it's actually a metaphor of hidden dangers you know ganga whenever we say we think that we are it's a pure it's a pious it's a sacred river so one holy dip in it dubki jisko bolte hain ek dubki marne se lagta hai there's rejuvenation of life which is going to come so when we talk about this rejuvenation of life there has to be security there has to be safety there has to be peace around one doesn't have to think about anything you know any kind of danger which is working around you and least that we expect is any kind of poison venom snakes and here he's written about snakes in ganga so there has to be something what are these snakes if i'm not wrong sir i think they depict the uncomfortable truths concerning india's vulnerabilities we would like to hear about them from the author himself so i will not go to the vulnerabilities myself uh but there are certain which are infiltrating india i was also reading about him and i found and while talking to him just before coming to this uh, audience so it's something so great i am inspired before this i was not but today i am actually inspired after sitting with you for some time i'll tell you why you know he is a researcher he is a public intellectual this we all know on civilizational studies world religion and cross culture countries and uh, encounters he has an amazing life journey he was trained initially as a physicist then as a computer scientist specializing in artificial intelligence coming to real intelligence now moving from artificial to the real intelligence an entrepreneur who founded and ran several it companies but since early 1990s as the founder of his non-profit infinity foundation he has been researching on civilizations from historical social and mind sciences and he's authored several best selling books with him is in conversation rahul shivshankar ji who doesn't know him every day we see him on tv we offered him a cup of tea and coffee he said no i don't take tea coffee and i was wondering how can the roaring voice on national tv without tea 
भारतीय होने के नाते चाय पीना तो बनता है बट दैट इज समथिंग विच इज टेक एंड ही सेड इट्स माय कन्विक्शन विच मेक्स मी स्पीक सो आई थिंक अ बिग अप्लॉड फॉर बोथ ऑफ देम आई जस्ट टेक वन मोर मिनट सर इन गीता इट इज सेड डू योर धर्म नो मैटर हु और हाउ मेनी पीपल गो अगेंस्ट यू एंड आई एम सो हैप्पी you're here amongst the young generation here and i think we as teachers it is our duty to give a holistic development to these students but this holistic development has to mean a few things you know many times it happens that you just give your viewpoint you just give your opinion and many people may think that snakes in the ganga is just his viewpoint no it is not please pick up the book it's running into i think 800 pages more than 800 pages and if you look at the footnotes hundreds and thousands of them which means that he has done deep research into the work and this is the message which i would like to give as a teacher stealing his copyright that you must work you must research go deep into the subject and then give your what we say your opinions about something because if that opinion is well researched it would be well taken by people only when you can only then can you talk about historical social perspectives if you have read it so another good thing that you are doing for our students is that you are teaching them that if you have done your homework well you should also have the courage you should have the boldness to bring it before people and challenge those who are talking against you and tell them come let's have a dialogue and i bet nobody has still come to you for a dialogue because sometimes when you're so well researched when you've gone deep into the topic the others are scared under fear of talking to you because they know that they're going to lose the battle it is not the battle that we are talking about it is the kind of uh, you know research that he has done and another thing that you have taught our young generation is the spirit of nationalism i think this is something which we all must learn just not because we are an indian it is not that just we are indians we should look at the history we should read at such books and go further research and question him thank you so much i welcome you all to this i think uh, uh, a great moment for all of us to have rajiv ji here amongst us thank you so much thank you so much ma'am i would now invite rajiv malhotra sir and vijay vishwanathan ma'am for the book reading session vishwanathan ma'am has joined us online from united states over to you sir namaste it's a pleasure to be here i've been here many many times my friend here has invited me alone i think about eight or nine times uh, so it's a and i'm also a product of delhi university i did my physics honors from st stephen's college uh, from 68 to 71 <clears throat> and what a delight to have rahul quiz me grill me i hope you do that and most of all my co-author vijaya is online and she's woken up at 4 o'clock in the morning in new jersey just to be part of this 
I want to discuss in general what this book is about. But first of all, I want to tell you, don't be scared by the thick size. You, you don't need to read it cover to cover. The book is not meant to be read cover to cover except for somebody who's writing a dissertation. You can read any chapter by itself. So you read the introduction, you get the whole overview of the whole thesis. Every chapter starts with overview. There's a one page overview section which gives you the highlights of that chapter. So there are 22 chapters and each with a one page overview or one and a half page overview. So if you read the introduction and you read the overviews, then in 70, 80 pages, you will have understood what the book is saying. The rest of the book, the details are to prove the thesis. We, we make a claim and then in the, in the rest of a particular chapter, we prove it with quotations, with references, with citations, with arguments. But if you, take, if you just want to know what is our thesis, you don't need to read the whole book. And then you can go to any page, any chapter, separately and read it. You don't have to read them in sequence and you don't have to read all of them. So if you want to know, for example, uh, what is the attack against IITs by Harvard University, which is a very serious attack, then you read chapter four. We explain to you what they are saying and our response. And that's the only chapter you need to read. Or if you want to read what does Ajay Piramal Center at Harvard, what is it doing? And how is it an issue for us? Then there's a chapter for that. Or what is the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard doing? There's a separate chapter for that. Or what is happening at Ashoka University, which concerns us because they're importing Harvard ideas, which are not consistent with our dharmic ideas and redistributing them. Then there's a separate chapter for that. So the separate chapters cover separate things. It's written with that in mind. So don't let the size scare you. The overall thesis is based on 30 years of engagement I've had, particularly with the liberal arts establishment in the United States, the Ivy Leagues. I live in Princeton, right near Princeton University. I've engaged them. I've engaged University of Chicago, Columbia University, Harvard University, etc. My foundation gave millions of dollars of grants to various universities in order to promote Indian thought. And I was very much an active person in engaging them. And I found that rather than promoting Indian thought, they were doing what I call caste, cows and curry. That was their idea of India, kind of, a, a, you know, mythic India, a very stereotype India, and India, the land of social abuse and things of that sort. So I started engaging them and I read every single dissertation that would come out of these places while being a donor. In those days, there was no other donor. There was no... Uh, Mahindra or uh, Mittal or Piramal or Tatas and these people had not arrived and we, uh, we, were, we were the ones who were launching the whole idea of Indian donors trying to promote India studies in these universities and it was very difficult to get our point of view across because we know what Oxford did during the British Empire and it seems that the empire shifted across the Atlantic and now Harvard was taking that kind of a role playing the leading player, the leading player in the area of discourse development, bringing scholars of a certain kind, spinning a certain idea and then sending it out. And, you know, this has to be taken on. At some point in time, it has to be taken on. So after funding them for many years, 
funding the Indology Roundtable Conference for several years in a row, funding visiting professors at Harvard for multiple years, and, and it cost a lot of money. I withdrew from funding because I felt that this is like feeding the crocodiles. You're feeding the crocodiles, the crocodile will not become like a friendly dog and, be, and wag his tail and try to be a nice dog to you. No matter how much you feed, the, do, the guy is going to eat your hand when he can. So you're just feeding something that is not going to change. So it's a bad idea. The right thing to do is we need to create Vedic liberal arts in India and be able to respond. And so that's how I transferred my posture. It wasn't like I suddenly came up with all these ideas to criticize them one day. I've, I've been an insider. I have a history of funding them, being in rooms like this, being in panel discussions, uh, engaging those people as a donor, celebrated, appreciated, with a lot of thank you letters and all of that stuff. I've been there and I decided to quit. And after I quit playing that role, there was a vacuum and then they decided to go after Mumbai-based billionaires and said, okay, now we'll get our money from there. And that's the game that started and that's what I'm critiquing in some ways. So I have, uh, I have a background in what I'm talking about. Many of the senior people I've engaged, I've known them for a very long time. The discourse starts in the United States for American problems of race. And I explained that in chapter one. And then these theories, which are applicable to the United States, and I have sympathy for these theories when applied to the United States. But these theories then get mapped onto India. The main mapping is that caste is a form of racism. Now we know there are caste problems. I have no, I'm not defending. I'm saying there are caste problems. They can be solved and they are being solved and more needs to be done. But it is not the same thing as American racism. There is no history of that kind. It is not like Dalits were brought from Africa or some other place and made into slaves. It's not like that. They're part of our family. And there is abuse and there is distortion and there is oppression that needs to be solved. But it is not the same thing as the American racism. And if you have one disease, you cannot cure it with the medicine of another disease. The disease is there and you need to cure it, but you cannot say it's the same as the other disease. They are different. So these issues are different. The issues of bias are different. Also, this idea that Dalits are the blacks of India and the non-Dalits are the whites of India. And uh, India is basically like the American racism where the whites are oppressing and suppressing the, the, the blacks. This is kind of how the whole theory is. And this has been exported to Indian thought, Indian studies all over the world now from Harvard. So this is the problem I'm, I see. It is not that everything about Harvard is bad. Harvard is a wonderful university for physics, for chemistry. They've got Nobel prizes for biology, for medicine, for engineering in those STEM, STEM education fields, it's fantastic. In economics, it's fantastic. So there are a lot of schools in Harvard that are wonderful. But when it comes to the study of India, when it comes to social justice, when it comes to issues of human rights, when it comes to gender studies, the studies of uh, grievances, all kinds of people who got grievances against the establishment, when it comes to the study of those, and the way they mapped India as a land of oppressed people. It's a nation of oppressed people, nation of victims. And it's a question of identifying this victim, that victim, organizing them, making them fight this guy, that guy. 
and dismantling Hindutva, dismantling the nation state, dismantling Indian government, dismantling the Vedic system, dismantling Indian constitution, dismantling India in every sense, dismantling families, dismantling families is part of the agenda. So when it goes so bad, then you have to stand up and say something. No, now it may be said, why are you taking them on? And isn't it unreasonable that you are critical of them? But wait a second, they are so powerful. It's the David and Goliath syndrome. They are so powerful. They are so hegemonic. They have the, they own the, the journals, the conferences. They train all the famous journalists who go and write in Washington Post and New York Times and you know, Wall Street Journal and BBC and all of that. They populate the think tanks where all kinds of things happen. They are developing the policies for Niti Aayog. They're consultants, people they've trained who go into McKinsey and who go into places like Deloitte and Touche and PricewaterhouseCooper and Ernst and & Young and all of these famous international American you know, consulting companies. They populate these and then these people are writing all the policies. Your HR policy, your policy on environment, your policy on technology is all written by these foreign consultants. So there is a kind of a new colonization. The previous Breaking India 1.0 talked about foreign nexuses invading through the grassroots, through the bottom, uh, either conversions in poor villages, uneducated poor villages, or Dravidianism. It was not elite, not top level. But now Breaking India 2.0 is different because now they're coming to elite places. They're coming to places like Ashoka, where you pay 10 to 12 lakhs a year to send your kids. These are from rich families. And people who send their kids to play in Ivy Leagues in the United States, it costs $70,000 a year. So these are pretty rich people. So the, the intellectual brainwashing is now not at the grassroots level. That's going on already, which was started long ago. That's continuing. But this is at a new level at the top. So in that sense, it's very different from uh, the previous uh, Breaking India and hence it requires a different study. Now, one of the, one of the, the cornerstones of this thing known as critical race theory, which is popularly called wokeism, the foundation is that all the old structures of knowledge production have produced a hegemonic discourse because of the people involved, people, elitist people in charge, they've produced a hegemonic discourse. And therefore, there needs to be a counter-hegemony, a counter-hegemony. So I'm taking their theory, applying it back to them. And I'm saying that the Indology or the study of India is now being controlled by these very people. Even the folks in India are either studying under a professor who came from there, Okay, more, many of them, many of the elite colleges here are very proud. They're quoting those sources. They're not quoting the Adhikaris of our civilization. They're quoting places in the West and Harvard being the top of the whole pyramid. So if that is the structure of knowledge production, that is the hegemonic discourse. So according to critical race theory itself, we are supposed to create a counter hegemony. And so that's what I'm trying to do. So why is that considered unfair criticism when you are taking on the mighty, mightiest people who have prevented discourse from the other side? It's called cancel culture. I have been canceled for 25, 30 years. If I, if I go and say I want to speak on the India forum, so many times 
Indian students have proposed my name in the annual India conference and it gets killed at the top because they say, no, 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 we don't want these kind of people. And I'm not the only one cancelled. There are lots of people cancelled. You can look at the list of who's who that are being brought in all the time and felicited and given a lot of space. And then the Harvard Tappa makes them very credible and legitimate. And then they come here and they have a lot of authority. Okay. And then you can see who has never been invited. I'll give you an example. They have a lot of discussions recently on the economics of caste. And they brought in certain people. But they've never brought in, for instance, R. Vaidyanathan of Indian Institute of Management in Bangalore, who has spent decades studying with statistics on different castes and what is the economic situation of those castes, what is good, what is not good, how, it, how the jatis use uh, their, their cohesiveness and their collective identity to do bargains and trades and share financial resources with each other. A lot of brilliant pieces of work, never once invited never once referenced, it's almost like he's cancelled. He's not allowed to be there. You'll find a lot of Indian thinkers of that kind have been totally cancelled. So you have, in the name of free speech and liberalism, you have the world's most powerful university calling itself the Vishwaguru, because Indians have thought this is the Vishwaguru, with the arrogance of power. So here I am as one man, and I don't have, uh, the. Uh, I'm not part of the institution of government here. I'm not part of the institution of any organized media. I'm not part of any uh, think tank. Uh, you know, I'm not part of any sort of you know, university situation where I have a forum. I'm just one man as a free thinker challenging them. So what is wrong with that? Isn't that the true spirit of free thinking and liberalism that one person should be able to take on the mightiest people, invite them in a polite, diplomatic, dignified way, with a respectful way for a dialogue, a discourse and a debate. And that's all I have done for 25, 30 years, but they've decided to cancel because they cannot stand the logic, the arguments, the data that we keep providing in our books. So therefore, we go and write a book for the public so that you, the public, are better informed. So that you, the public, it's your future. I'm 72 years old. It's not my future. It's your future at stake. So you have to know these things so that you don't, you don't get fooled. And you have to be able to stand up and say, why is the government following blindly the advice of foreign uh, policymakers who have come from somewhere else, who got their own agendas? Why are the industrialists funding all this? Why is the media not exposing this? Why didn't the IITs raise, why didn't the IITs respond when their institution was attacked? I, I'm responding, I'm not even an IITian. But you have very rich IIT people in very high places, why aren't they responding? And why haven't the professors of IIT responded? I mean, the, the number of issues I'm raising are quite a lot and quite, uh, quite a lot of provocations. So the, um, the, the, the book requires serious reading, but you know, it's not necessarily going to take you a lot of time. It's easy, the language we made sure there are diagrams and pick images and sort of to help you out. It is very large amount of information organized in a simple way. A large amount of information organized so that it's easy for you to understand what exactly is going on, how to respond. If you want to be well informed to be in the dialogue, in the conversations, in the debates, you want to talk back 
you want to be very intelligent. This is a, this, the book we've done is the best we can think of to educate our people so they can stand up and speak with confidence. So when you speak on a certain subject matter, you know what to say, what the other guy is thinking, how to figure out what he's thinking, where is he coming from and how we can respond. And if you need data, you go back to the book and you look up, there is data, there is references, quotes, you can look that up. So that's the project. It's been a long piece of work done. Many of these are things that had been written before. I've been writing for a long time and they have to be compiled, cleaned up, verified and now put together in a book. And this is how I'm writing many books. Uh, things that much of my written work has never been published. I would say 80-90%. I keep writing every morning. And then one day when there's enough written on a certain topic, I clean it up and try to get it out and publish it. So that's how this, this book is also something that has been churning for a very long time. Uh, I would like to uh, stop and thank you very much. Now I would request Mr. Rahul Shivshankar sir to commence with conversations with Rajiv Malhotra sir, followed by a question answer session. Over to you sir. Thank you for being here, all of you. It, this is a pleasant surprise to see so many young people that we actually want to reach out to. Big books these days overwhelm the young. So don't be overwhelmed by the size of this book. Every page is worth reading. And unlike in his modest way, Mr. Malhotra says you don't need to read it from cover to cover, I actually have, and found it very enriching, and I'm sure all of you will, and it is an eye-opening book, because it will help you locate some of the conversations we are having with such energy uh, in the country. Now, Mr. Malhotra, thank you very much for speaking to me today, for making the time. It's a pleasure to be speaking to someone who at last is willing to submit their thesis for scrutiny, if I may put it like that. So it's always a sign that someone has done their research, they're sure about their facts, and they have the robustness intellectually to defend their thesis. And this is a very heavy thesis which you have presented, and I'm sure is going to spark a huge conversation. So without much ado, let me begin. Much of the concern you voiced in the book was in a way apparent just a few days ago when the Wall Street Journal carried a full-page advertisement calling for the imposition of sanctions against certain Indians, 11 Indians, through the Magnitsi Act. This created a huge controversy because there were 11 names that were taken. But what we are now being told, according to government sources and others who were part of the group that actually funded this particular advertisement, was that the person behind or one of the intellectual architects of this campaign was the CEO of Devas Ramachandran Vishwanathan, who is a fugitive at large. So this ad was inspired by a fugitive in the WSJ. How do you read this? And who do you believe are the forces at work here and what is their agenda? 
Thank you very much. So, as we mentioned in this book, there are systems in place that are against the sovereignty of India and its civilization. And these people come from various points of view. They're not all the same point of view. Some are Indians who feel that they've been cheated or they have grievances against the country and they haven't gotten justice. To be, to, to be fair to them, they, haven't, they feel they haven't gotten justice and they're going to an international authority. Much like some Indian Rajas would go to the East India Company for help because they would feel that maybe this guy will give me justice. Now, you can argue that perhaps it's a good thing to do. I've talked to many of them and they say, look, in India, I didn't get justice, so I've gone to Harvard. And I say to them that maybe if you look at the track record of Harvard, the track record of Harvard, whether they intervene in Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam in the name of bringing human rights and democracy, they destroyed it, destroying whatever existed there, the structures that existed there in the name of creating better new structures. The new structures never happened. The old structures got de destroyed. They left anarchy and a whole lot of nonsense and mess. So if you look at the track record, they haven't really succeeded in doing this anywhere else. Why would we trust them and bring them here? How do you know that they won't make it even worse for you? And the second point is, that while there is injustice in India, social injustice in India, the US, people like Harvard and others, have not been able to repair the social justice in their own country. I mean, how can they export solutions to us? So, you know, for, for people to put out uh, issues against Indians, you can find such issues 10 times over against, you know, Americans themselves, and they should be basically sorting their own thing out. I, I see the following, I see that Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, all these places, think tanks, the US Congress, Harvard, etc., are like a giant foil. And the pe people who, are, who feel injustice has been done, uh, who have grievances, want to reach out and hit out and get something from them because you feel, they feel that if I am enough of a victim, if I play the role of victim, they'll admit me. And so maybe they'll help me. So I see that that's what's going on. It's a combination of people who are victims, who feel that their own country didn't help them enough. And maybe somebody is a fugitive or somebody is a activist in some other sense. Um, there are a lot of uh, political groups in India that go to Harvard. Uh, Sugata Bose is based there. And he was an MP in uh, Mamta Banerjee's party. So he's based, he's a permanent, he's a very senior professor there. He brings all these kind of people there. Rahul Gandhi is uh, interviewed and he gives a lot of talk against the Indian government, but he'd rather go there and do it. You see, I have no problem with uh, all of this discussion happening within, within India. It should happen. But when you go to a foreign authority, then you're bringing in their agenda. You shouldn't think that they have a, there are some pure people who are, you know, out there without any agenda of their own and they're out there to generously help you. They've never done that in any other country that they intervene. So that's how, that's my perspective on why this is going on and I would blame Indians also. I don't think that all Indians are very nice and easy and good people and all Americans are bad people and they're doing this to us. I don't believe in that. There, the United States has many fragments, many segments, many different kinds of people and you will find from the one extreme to the other extreme, many, like in India, you find many kinds of people. So basically it's the Indians who have found allies in America, certain groups, in, to help them out. 
and these that's the all sorts of things that are happening in india are there is are a product of this sort of uh, combination collaboration between grieved indians and americans who have this liberal idea that we're going to civilize the world we're going to save humanity even though they haven't saved their own people so i th i see it that way it's interesting because how would you explain then the difference between what we're seeing now and what's happened in the past remember that india was on the wrong side of the western uh, perhaps intellectual tradition in the 50s and 60s and 70s we were seen as being aligned to the soviet bloc and of course there were uh people who were funding and collaborators here in india who were open to funds from the west to try and change uh the dominant narrative in the country so how does that differ from the past what's happening now so in the past they didn't want india to slip too much into the soviet camp so that's the interference you're talking about the cia was here in fact one of the leaders who understood what i'm talking about better than anyone else was indira gandhi i have to say that indira gandhi took on richard nixon she was very concerned about the cia she banned ford foundation you know she banned ford foundation she did a lot of things that were very nationalistic so you can't say that this is some kind of a hindutva project because she's nothing to do with hindutva she was just a very patriotic indian who didn't like all this kind of nonsense happening and she was very angry at henry kissinger and she was angry at nixon all that stuff is well known now in in the present time the united states has appreciated that india is a useful ally i would use the word useful it's not ally per se like in the sense of uh, england or israel but a useful ally useful in the sense that we can be a counter to china we can be a counter to the expansion of islam both of those are the big problems that the united states faces but it's not india for the for sake of india indians somehow get mesmerized get into a romantic thing that you know maybe the russians love us or maybe the americans love us the fact is that nobody loves us they love themselves and they love us if if it's useful for that we have to really stand on our own the way china has done and so uh united states uh, interventions in india have changed uh, from the earlier version which was to subvert the soviet influence uh, to a new version which is partly to bring in open the policies of the economy and bring in a floodgate of whole lot of american technology and and also american policies both technologies going at the elite level of corporate and policies are going at the government level also at the top and so and educating a huge generation of people young indians either directly from america or indirectly through professors who've been trained in america so it's a that's where the difference is and the end game for the united states is to make india a a good thriving economy a capitalist economy up to a point but not another china you see a billion plus chinese is bad enough competition having another billion plus economy also like that would be just devastating so they don't want india to fall apart because that would be like uh, another middle east kind of a thing 100 times bigger that would be very bad if india fell apart that would be bad for the americans and if india became another china the other way around that would also be bad for the americans i often call it the mother in law syndrome if i may be pardoned for that mother in law doesn't want that the couple fight and break up that's not good for her 
but she doesn't want that they come together so strong that she, they also defy her. So, so, so it's like if they are, if they are too much together. I'm glad you clapped, you liked my humor because in many places I go, they say, oh no, no, sexist and whatever. You'll be canceled. Yeah. You'll so, be canceled. But I see that you can take humor also. So if, the, if they are too strong, that's a threat. But if they fall apart, there's no family left, that's also pretty bad. So this is the American mother-in-law syndrome. If India were to fall apart, it's bad for America. They don't want it. And if India were to be too much together, so that would be another China. They don't want that either. They don't want India to fall apart like the Middle East crisis, all these things happening and wars inside. And they don't want India to become another China, which is too strong, too together. So this is the dance of America between these two extremes. And this is some one way, one thing you have to keep in mind when you're trying to read them. Okay, now in your book, and it's very interesting, you write one of the ways that this is being done and let me quote you, is that uh, seeds of social discord are being planted. Now, let me quote you here. Mr. Malhotra and co-author Ms. Vishwanathan write, what is essential to explain is the way American, African-Americans and Dalits are being brought together for this purpose so that the latest shockwaves of racism in American society can be transported to India, unquote. In other words, what you're saying is that a parallel is being drawn between the black experience, the subversion of a particular cadre of society, and here in India with Dalits. And you talk in detail about how this is being done. My question is, if a group believes it has a historical grievance of being ill-treated, does place its grievance in certain global context to create awareness. Now, is that what you believe is happening here or is there something more insidious? I think that's what's happening here. There are grievances. Uh, I sympathize with them. In fact, I've tried to reach out to these Harvard people. I've written to Suraj Yengde, their poster boy, for this Afro-Dalit movement. He's, he's uh, changed his hair to an Afro and he said, I'm a black. And it's kind of symbolically, uh, you know, brotherhood with the blacks. Uh, we heard of uh, Bobby Jindal, who was trying to be white. And now we have another kind of person who's trying to be black. I mean, there's opportunism both ways. So I've tried to reach out to him a few times saying, I'm actually critiquing your book, Shura Jengde. Uh, he's a young man, very charismatic, very powerful speaker. And they really like this kind of guy at Harvard. He's, he's an Indian Dalit. And I've said, can we sit down and talk about how all the issues you're raising can be addressed in the Indian context? You don't need Harvard. And how Harvard is using you. They're using you because you're a useful person for doing all this. And they're not going to, in the, at the end of the day, help you. You'll just make a lot of noise and help them out, help them out. And maybe the creamy layer, people like you will enjoy the good life at Harvard. But your people in India are not going to get any benefit out of it. So I've tried but not been able to get any response, any interest on their part. So I think this is correct in the people like that from India. There are Kashmir separatists, by the way. There are Khalistanis. So there, it's not just the Dalits. There are all kinds of people here who land and land up there. When they have these South Asian conferences, they feature all kinds of things. They talk about, you know, Indian army. In, I mean, 
that is the place you go and express your complaints against India and you get a very good hearing. And the counter view, they have never invited. Now, if there, are, if there is a panel on army atrocities in Kashmir, then the right thing would have been to bring an army person also on the panel to give a response. If there is a panel discussion that where Sura Jengde says that Brahmins are criminal tribe, a criminal caste, criminal, he keeps using it many times, okay? And he says things like family should be dismantled because family is a Brahmanical conspiracy to transmit oppressiveness into the next generation. When he makes these extreme cases, they should bring in people who are expert from the opposing point of view. And that would be, I would respect Harvard for doing that. But those people are canceled. So this one-sidedness of Harvard is troubling. So, so let me ask you this, because you have submitted a response to your book. And the chapter is called A Response History of Indian Social Organization, where you break down or critique his thesis and say that it has deficiencies. Can you explain for our audience that is watching, uh, what are the critical differences that you believe haven't been factored in when making this sort of link between the blacks in America and the Dalits here in India? Well, you know, when you talk about uh, racism in America and they map it onto Indian Dalits, not only Dalits, but also minorities, uh, the, the, you know, the equivalent would be if Indian minorities were people brought from another continent, brought by us from another continent as slaves and enslaved and oppressed. But you'd be Dalits are, I mean, neither Dalits were brought nor Muslims or Christians were forced and brought here as slaves. And that would be, that would be the equivalent thing. Also, when we talk about the, the uh, uh, oppressiveness that the whites had, the laws were very different. The, the, the laws of racism were very different. We haven't had that kind of, uh, the, the argument they give is that from Vedic times, uh, Dalits have been slaves. This is the kind of argument being given. But the facts are very different. They were uh, prior to the Islamic uh, period, uh, if you look at it, the, they, were, they were Dalit, they were Shudra dynasties of kings. Uh, there were many uh, professions where the lower caste were, what are today called lower caste, were quite prosperous. They were metallurgists, they were textile workers, they were agriculturists, and India was a very prosperous country. So when, you, when, in, when we look at the history, of the history of world economics, Cambridge University Press, history of world economics and world poverty, uh, uh, prosperity, until around 1800 or so, India, India and China were far richer than the Western world. So when you say India was so rich, as per Western documentation, their own British documentation, when India was so rich, it could not have been the case that two or five percent people who are Brahmins are controlling all the wealth. That was not the case. They are not even allowed to control the wealth. So it had to be the masses. And even Dharampal in the 1800s, he, he cites the British records that until the 1800s, the British themselves write that the average Indian is better fed, better clothed than his, his counterpart in England. So there was prosperity among the masses. And he also looks at the, at the composition of students in a patshala, and he looks at what caste they came from. Majority of them were lower caste by today. So the, the level of education given to these people was there. It was vocational for agriculture purposes, for the, you know whatever the profession of that family was, they were educated for that, and they were doing well. So I don't believe that if they were always consistently poor, that is not the case, that history doesn't bear that out. And nor, does, nor is it that uh, this was sanctioned 
because you know if you if you really want to look at varna which is not the same as jati and which is not the same as caste varna in the varna system a brahmin is not allowed to have wealth brahmin is not allowed to have wealth so today's brahmins are not being brahmins i mean they are if the ones who have wealth are not being brahmins it is not the fault of the system it is that they are not in they are in violation of the system because brahmins who accumulate wealth nor is a brahmin allowed to have political power he is that is a kshatriya's job so the separation of political power with kshatriyas and the kshatriya is not allowed to have wealth the kshatriya is not allowed to become a billionaire and he, and you know and nor can he become a brahmin and become a su- super intellectual type so the brahmins control intellectual capital the the uh, the, the kshatriyas political capital and legal ca- legal uh, capital and the vaishyas uh, economic capital so it's a separation of capital and also it is not by birth because that's a that's an old debate we've had uh, people have contest people have said it's by birth but all throughout history people have also said it's not by birth and they've challenged it so you've always had this back and forth going on with people from various origins and various births challenging and moving up and moving down so suraj yengde has got this very fossilized fixed you know all those guys are bad all these guys are good all the brahmins are oppressors this is kind of too extreme and and you mentioned that there is an attempt to therefore dismantle structures yes as we know them so so let me just quickly read out a few things that suraj yengde just wrote a few days back in a newspaper and just give you a little bit of a primer the fact is in your book you write that the whole idea is to dismantle hinduism which is the original sinner and then the political perhaps expression of it hindutva yes so mr yengre writes given that the rss has not actively tried to abolish caste from society the hierarchical varna structure is still sanctified by its caste the sworn hindus do not challenge the atrocities against dalits when cases such as hathras happen the honesty of dr bhagwat's words ring hollow they are merely a side talk by the rss trying to shadow bjp and reiterate that they're still the ones who call the shots unquote now mr malhotra one might disagree with mr yengre but can it be denied that this desire to unite hindu society does not find resonance among some who believe there are hindus who cannot overcome their prejudices against the scheduled castes tribes etc so is yengde's narrative divorced from reality so first of all i don't want to defend rss because they should defend themselves sure i mean i have uh, many friends who are in the rss i also disagree with some of them in, in on certain matters i also support them and i feel they've done amazing work but as far as defending their policy and their practice uh on regarding caste i think it's for them to do but what i've heard them say is they are against the caste system uh today they are against the caste system and they they know it weakens hindu society so for that reason they want to de- get rid of those kind of biases in fact a lot of the caste brahmin type people disagree with them on that very basis so i don't think his facts are correct but they have to defend that now as far as uh, are, is the society divided yes do they is there oppression yes but that is true of every society there is not a single civilization in the world today even a homogeneous society like japan certainly not russia certainly not the middle east certainly not france 
any European country, United States, there is no major country in the world which can say that there is no social hierarchy, that there is no social oppression. That is, the, that is how it is. So, so one could say all societies, all civilizations, all religions have failed, all countries have failed, dismantle everything. Then what happens? What happens is you have anarchy, you have a vacuum of power, a vacuum of any system, and this is a recipe for irresponsible people to take over the vacuum. If India fell apart because all the structures were destroyed, it is not that there will suddenly be Dalits running the country. It will be that there will be mischief makers from our neighborhood coming and taking over and the Dalits will also become slaves like anybody else. So if you destroy each other uh, because somebody says to X that Y is your enemy and, and they have oppressed you, you should overthrow them. It is not that X will start becoming the ruler, you'll destroy each other. The, the Marxist dialectic says that you have to, the, the thesis, the thesis should be combated with an antithesis and the two should have a war until both are destroyed so that a new order emerges. While, but in reality, Marxism has succeeded in creating destruction, never succeeded in creating a new order. They, they have no experience, they have, they have never proposed, when you've destroyed the structures, how will you propose, how will you put up a new structure? They have no idea. Uh, Suraj Jengde, if you ask him, okay, let's say you're successful, you demolish all the structures of Indian society. Okay, now you have anarchy. So what's your plan next morning? If today you achieve that next morning, what are you going to do? How are you going to run this society? See, this is the problem that Taliban had when they took over Afghanistan. They were very good at destroying and kicking out a structure. But when they had to suddenly run the country, they had no experience. They did not know what the hell to do. So now they're bringing everybody back saying, okay, now please help us run the country because we have no experience. So we may have a situation like that if the Suraj Yangdes were successful. This is interesting because in America, of course, there was this big conversation after the uh, death of uh, a black individual two and a half years ago, where certain city councils said the time has come because of institutionalized racism to dismantle the police force. And they didn't quite have an answer of what would replace it to bring about. But just to take off from where you left off, you talk about CRT or critical race theory. And you say it has its origins in Marxism. And Marxism hasn't been able to sort of supply the answers to a lot of the questions that you sort of uh, proposed. How can cancel culture, which is an intrinsic part of CRT, it is one of the reasons why you claim CRT militates against classical liberalism. How big a concern is this on Indian campuses, Delhi University, for example, which are at least on paper meant to be upholding inclusivity and a diversity of views. Uh, a colleague of mine comes from JNU, where right now, if you belong to the other side, so to speak, ideologically, you are considered uh, somebody who doesn't have an intellectual tradition backing your point of view. So how do you militate against, for example? So I think... Cancel culture. Cancel culture has existed in India. Cancel culture has existed in the United States. Basically, cancel culture says that those who disagree, rather than debating them, you should cancel them, throw them out. Now, this is totally contrary to the Indian ethos, which says do a purva paksha, which means you study the other respectfully, invite him for debate. Indians have a long history of argumentation, of engaging other people in a civil manner, 
non-violent, peaceful manner, purely intellectual manner, with rules of debate, with rules of debate, you see. So on the one hand, they are saying this, this old civilization is no good, uh, everything should be dismantled. But on the other hand, this is a civilization that given the world many great things, including the idea that you should listen to other people and you should invite them for debate. So cancel culture is a new phenomenon in India. It's also a relatively new phenomenon in, in, on American campuses because till recently, you know, the US campuses, when they were liberal, they were truly liberal. Nowadays, when they say liberal, it's just a name, but they're not being truly liberal. Cancel culture is the most illiberal thing you can imagine. And the, the, the campuses have become ideological centers rather than free thinking centers. So rather than giving them opposing points of view so that the kids can decide for themselves, they should, they should be comfortable in a world of complexity. They're being, they're, they'll be living in a complex world, not a world where everybody's like them. And if they're going to live in a complex world, they should know that I have this view, somebody has that view, maybe he's partly right, maybe I'm partly right. That's complexity and they should be encouraged. So people who disagree with Harvard, rather than being canceled, should be brought in. And I have no problem if I'm sitting there and there's all these other people against me and we are having an amicable debate. I have no problem if the whole class is against me or for me or if there's two people for me. I have no problem with that. But I do have a problem that they don't even want to hear opposing points of view. So this cancel culture is a kind of, a, it, it, it self-defeating because on the one hand you're against structures of oppression. But this cancel culture is itself a structure of oppression. Of course, there's a startling bit of hypocrisy and contradiction there, but you're seeming to sort of link it with CRT, but India has had um, a large number of groups, for example, that have got irritated by movies or books that have been written and intellectuals who have espoused points of views, even in the past. So, and, and you sort of say it's alien to Indian culture, but as we know, even under previous Congress governments, for example, there were hundreds of instances of where movies were not allowed to be screened or books that were not released. So uh, are we being a little superficial? Because cancel culture seems to have, I mean, there was an emergency for God's sakes in this country. That was the biggest, that was the <laughs> biggest, cancer, big, yes. biggest example and, and uh, legitimized by the courts yes. themselves. So how does that work? So I think modern India has this problem. I mean, I, I do not consider that uh, uh, whether it's the, the BJP government or the Congress government, I don't consider absolve them of this problem. I think uh, all and uh, the British had this problem, I and mean, the British would beat up all the you know uh, freedom fighters and all that stuff. They killed some of them. I mean, there's Jallianwala Bagh was a peaceful peaceful protest. I mean, come on, that's cancel culture. You shoot those guys. I mean, that's pretty bad. So this has been going on. And this is, this is a kind of a product of modernity. I think this is a product of modernity that I would say that more traditional societies, you look, I do a lot of work with Native Americans. Native Americans had a very free society. I mean, they would have a council of people, women, men, and they would all speak up, you know, and nobody's got a kicked out for some opposing point of view. Somehow in modernity, this started in the West and it spread everywhere. Uh, the intolerance uh, and, and kind of an absoluteness of truth that some people control became kind of prevalent. And media, uh, I mean, sorry because you're from media, but media kind of played this role because it's sort of the gatekeeper. 
And so as the gatekeeper of what will go out and what won't go out, it has also kind of homogenized the discourse in some ways. Uh, so I would, uh, and we thought when social media came that this will change cancel culture because now anybody can do this. So for a while, social media was the antidote to cancel culture. But guess what happened? The algorithms are now running the social media. The algorithms are canceling. It's not Mark Zuckerberg deciding that you're, you will be canceled and you will be promoted. He doesn't have to do that. He's got these algorithms which can do the job of 100 million censors censoring human beings. And these algorithms have been fed certain criteria of truth. So now, for instance, if I say swastika, the algorithm says it's Nazism. And I cannot argue that in my tradition, it doesn't mean that. My tradition has a different meaning. Uh, during COVID, uh, many of my uh, videos were canceled because I was advocating Ayurvedic treatments. And in the, in, over there, the uh, idea of Ayurvedic treatment was considered fake news. So it was canceled. So who gets to decide? The only thing they tell you is violates community standards. So you violated community standards. There's no human being available. Finally, when you do get to a human being at uh, YouTube or Facebook, they will say, sir, we don't know because this is the algorithm. Algorithm is the devata that is canceling people now. Very interesting. You mentioned that even in your book. Um, now, coming to Harvard, which you just talked about, which you believe is in many ways not just a symbol, but also a laboratory for unleashing these snakes uh, in the Ganga. Now, this is a dramatic exposition when you link an institution and we began by speaking about it but in some ways many people there might think that you are being hyperbolic and political and if someone doesn't agree with you you've sort of typecast them you've called them a snake uh, there are other examples of people being called anti-nationals here in india so how do you address those skeptics who will say no, no, Rajiv Malhotra is very upset because we don't call him for a few debates now in Harvard and he's therefore gone off on a tangent and he's now saying that whatever we do is uh, engineered towards the breakup of India and so on and so forth. Okay, so Harvard has such a lot of extreme admonishment and attacks on India, they can hardly complain that I'm doing the same to them. I mean, the power they have is a thousand times or many thousands of times more than mine. And if they are wielding this power and constantly able to come up with the standard discourse on Indian history, they have an idea on this Aryan theory, which is a very standard Harvard discourse. And you can go on arguing against it all you want. They just accuse you and blame you and call you names, but they're not going to invite such people. So it's not just a problem with me personally. It's a problem with the whole system that is a contrarian system. Uh, you know, I disagreed when they canceled Subramaniam Swami. I mean, maybe I don't agree with him on all things, but they fired him from Harvard. Uh, he was an economics professor. His specialty was comparative study of Indian and Chinese economy. It had nothing to do with Islam. But he happened to make a statement in Mumbai where he said that Indian Muslims had Hindu ancestors. Now, okay, you, if you disagree with it, you invite him and give him a contrarian view and debate him and see what, what the truth is. You don't cancel him from his economics class. It has nothing to do with it. And in many ways, it makes sense because if they didn't have Hindu ancestors, then who were their ancestors? Their ancestors would have to be Arabs. 
which the Muslims don't want to. The Muslims don't want that to say that our Arab, our ancestors were Arabs or Turks. They are Indians. So if they were Indians, then who were they? I mean, it's not a totally outrageous hypothesis. You can say maybe it's false or maybe it's true. Maybe it's sometimes true. In some cases, it's false. But it's something subject for debate. You don't have to fire an economics professor. So I can give you many such examples where they have done this kind of thing. So it's hardly uh, fair criticism that I'm criticizing. If I'm taking them on, it's something unreasonable because people who have so much power and so much absolute power and who've used it in this kind of a way need to be criticized. And, you know, I like to take on, on an issue, I like to take on the most powerful examples, not the marginal examples. Because if I'm to make my case on the hegemony of Western study of India, then taking on some minor college here, there's a minor professor would not make my case. My case is made by taking on the most powerful. They have all the resources to come back and to debate me and to prove me wrong. And I'm challenging them to do that in a civil manner. And if they can do it and if they, they can correct me, I'll, I'll uh, correct myself. I'll put out a new edition and make all the corrections if they can find, uh, find, find flaws. So this means I put myself up against a very high standard. And I like to do that because if I'm right, if I'm right even part of my points, if I made a hundred points, even if many of them are right, it's such a big deal. It would call for a major overhaul. And my belief is that I'm right pretty much all the time or in all of these because I've done my research. So I, I have raised the bar by criticizing the highest, most mighty people for a reason. And I challenge so let me ask you, because you write this, and I, I'm going to wind up in just the next five minutes so the floor can be opened up. Mm -hmm. um, you write, we discovered something far more worrisome. China's inroads into Harvard are also a gateway for it to penetrate India with influence and subversion, unquote. Tell us about how this is happening. So there's two parts to this. China has infiltrated Harvard is a story in its own right. China's infiltration of Harvard has now become known to the FBI. They've gone and arrested a few professors. This has happened over a quarter century. Uh, and only in the last few years, when the US started becoming suspicious of China, they started looking at where are their footprints, where are their spies, you know, uh, and they realized that in Amer many American think tanks and some of the corporate R&D centers uh, and in places like Harvard, they've brought lots of people and they've infiltrated. Diff exactly the opposite of Indian billionaires who have given the money and let Harvard call the shots and Harvard brainwash Indians. In the, in the case of Chinese, they've given the philanthropists have given money, but they required Harvard to follow certain guidelines that China has established. So you cannot, you cannot use Chinese uh, money and affiliations and use it to criticize the, their policy on Tibet or the Uyghurs or their policy in Hong Kong or Taiwan. You can't do that. Not allowed at Harvard. So that is the first part that Chinese presence in places like Harvard. Second part is that they've used this presence to get into India because Harvard is now in India in a big way. Harvard is in Mumbai. They have a center in Delhi. Uh, they are, they are uh, in active collaboration with uh, Piramal on public health and so on. And Chinese influence is there. Chinese are very present in Ashoka University, the China Studies Center in Ashoka University. I've had some 
nice conversations with people who are involved in India's security kind of intelligence kind of people. And they are also agreeing that there are a lot of red flags about the, the China studies going on in certain places in India. But most of all, it's the data gathering. The Chinese equipment with photographs and videos and with facial recognition are like monitoring devices all over India. So China is big in uh, in capturing AI, what would be very, what's very useful for AI, which is big data, capturing data from Indian sources, capturing data from, uh, automatically and also from various Indian databases. So a lot of the examples we have given in this book concern the data mining of India that China is doing. This is a table on page three to four, where you talk about the Harvard University's ethics. And then if you just turn the page, we come to this big chart. And uh, Samarota was talking about these charts. Indian billionaires, Harvard, Vishwaguru, and Breaking India 2.0, where he talks about, of course, and he adds this caveat that, look, uh, successful Indian businessmen have funded Harvard University. Obviously, you don't attribute malify the um, motives, but you do say that they ought to now seriously review or at least investigate what their money is actually turning out. Now, why do you say this? More than the money is their family name. Because if I were Lakshmi Mittal, then imagine... Lakshmi Mittal and family, South Asia Institute at Harvard. So a person stands up and makes all this, all, spits out all this stuff. And on the back, the, the banner says Lakshmi Mittal and family, South Asia Institute. And he's standing there. He's introduced. His visiting card says he's a professor there. And the conference is named after that family institute. It's their annual conference. You know, I would be very concerned that in my name, all this stuff is going on. Sooner or later, people in India are going to find out. It's not going to remain a secret forever. And when they find out, are they going to be upset? If I were in their shoes, I would have an independent annual report. I would bring, like you bring auditors every year to check it out. And their job is to raise red flags. They, they're not harming you by saying that, uh, Mr. Industrialist, these are some issues in your factory. These are issues in your books. They're actually helping you. Like, a, like you go for a physical fitness test and the cardiologist says, do this, do that. Here are some problems. He's not trying to harm you. He's trying to help you. So in the same way, what we are doing is a civilizational audit on behalf of these, these industrialists saying that as far as Indian civilization is concerned, I mean, you guys are doing a lot of good in India and you're trying to do good in Harvard. But frankly, in your name and with your money, are aligned certain speakers, certain thinkers, certain type of dissertations, certain resolutions, certain political movements, which are not very good for India. And you should take a look. And if you like it, fine. I, it's not your, my money. I have no right to stop them. I'm not trying to stop them. I'm simply raising an issue. But if you want to do, continue doing this, continue doing it. But let the people of India know that this is what you want to do. On the other hand, if you're concerned, then do something about it. Well, that's what my final question to you is about. Look, universities are guilty of the same selectivism as individuals. Uh, they have their own biases too, as you've now sort of expounded over the last half an hour. There is a robust left ecosystem, but the intellectual right hasn't been able to sort of create its own Harvard 
for lack of a better word. Yes. So why crib about it? Let's focus on the solution, which is to create your own ideologically aligned Bharatiya Vedic Harvard. Absolutely. I would love to see, and I've said this for 20 years, and I would be available in any way to help. I would love to see a Vedic liberal arts university in India. There, is, there are these 64 colors that were taught in the Indian system, you know, everything from debate and philosophy and, you know, the Dharmashastras, the Arthashastras, the Natashastras, all of that. Uh, those are the liberal arts of India. And India was the head, the Harvard of the time, if you will, because people would come from China, the, the brilliant scholars from Cambodia, Vietnam, all over these countries would come to India and study this and take it back. I mean, the Chinese accept this, that India civilized China in a big way. The Japanese accept that. I have a very, I used to have a friend in uh, Columbia University who later moved to Harvard, a Japanese guy called Ruchi Abi, Ruchi Abi who wrote, he, he knew what the kind of work I'm doing like 25 years ago. So he gifted me a book called Weaving the Mantra by Ruchi Abi, which is a big, huge book. And it gives the history of Japanese culture and its debt to India. Language, iconography, martial arts, so much thinking that came from not just religion and Buddhism, but so many things that came from there. So, you know, India has been the liberal arts Vishwa Guru at one time for Eurasia, much of Eurasia. Okay. But today we are a consumer, not a producer of knowledge. And it's not enough to be emotional and be bombastic and have slogans and knock down this and have a riot that. I'm against that. I don't like it when the Hindu right is basically about shouting, screaming down other people, replacing one kind of a dogma and cancel culture with another. I think we need to train intelligent people. And this book is a manual. It's a training manual to help you do that. Please, if you want to do a one semester course on this, I'll be happy to come and teach it if you want me to do that. Because you need to learn how to argue, what to argue, how to debate in a very civil manner. We need to produce people when they such that when you are facing unreasonable statements from the other side, you are either shouting them down and saying, I'll do this or that to you, you know, threats and all that. You should say, give me time, have a neutral, honest moderator, and let's debate and let's be straightforward. If you produce enough people like that, the victory will be far greater for you, far more spectacular, and those people will run because they will not be able to stand your logic and your clarity. That's what we need to do rather than all this counter-cancel counter culture, which I think is a bad idea. A very good point that uh, Professor has made here. It's a very, very important point. Thank you very much for watching this. Thank you very much. We can also take a few questions. Namaskaram, sir. Sir, many times I've seen, uh, and my friends have also seen, like we are uh, talking on phone. And, or we are not even talking on phone. We are just talking and the phone is there. And within 15 minutes or within 30 minutes, we see Instagram ad on the same thing that we were talking. Yes. Sir, is this true that all our devices that we are talking are being listened to? Yes. Or this is just a conspiracy theory? No, this, this is true. This is absolutely true. Uh, this is what, you know, if I have a book called Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. I don't know if they have it outside. It, it came out last year. AI and the future of power, five battlegrounds that goes into all this in great detail. 
Hello. Hello. Yeah. So, sir, a little background. I come from Allahabad University. My graduation for, was from there. When I came for masters in this university, uh, like before, you, ma'am, talked about all LGBTQ and trans issues and the problems that we are facing. So, what I have seen in city, which is not like Delhi, that like Allahabad or maybe Lucknow, which is my home town, town, we are not like that much prone to the effects of American culture of uh, trans issues, where they are not imposing their pronouns. Here in the campus as well as, uh, it was new for me, strange as well, that uh, few of the students when we are, we are gathering and trying to get to know each other, uh, they told that we should also introduce our pronouns as well. Then after that, a few of them identified their genders as non-binary. Then I realized that in Delhi University, people are actually wearing clothes that are gender neutral. So my question is uh, basically this, that what is it in city like Delhi that it is so prone to American culture and American issues. Like it grabs it just immediately as it is started from there. So some of it is inferiority complex that we are not good enough and we need some Gora guys to tell us what to do because previously it was the British and now, you know, maybe we should be adopted by Russians or Americans or Chinese don't want to adopt us. So we are, un uh, we are kind of like orphans without parents adopt, uh, you know, raising us. We behave like children who need somebody else to tell us. This is rooted, unrootedness, lack of being rooted in our own culture, like Vijaya was saying. This is the problem. So people are hanging on to any latest fashion that comes from here and there. And tomorrow America may change and they will go to some other direction and we'll go running after that. This is how stupid it has become. It is not something of Indian origin. We, we have total respect for LGBTQ and all these people. They've been part of our culture for thousands of years. In fact, in the introduction of this book, I have uh, Deepti Rao. She's an LGBTQ person in Silicon Valley and I know her very well. And she has written a very, very nice piece saying that she wants to be a Hindu and she wants to be LGBTQ. But when she joined the LGBTQ movement in the United States for support, they required her to reject Hinduism. They required her to be, they wanted her to become political against her own heritage to be part of the LGBTQ movement in the United States. As an individual, the LGBTQ person is a human being like anyone else. They are part of the Leela, they should be loved and they should be allowed to do what, however they feel. But when they are being told by a foreign agency to organize as a group, become political. And you know, there is this uh, uh, Godrej Cultural Labs and we've quoted in this book that some of the guys who are representing their LGBTQ or anti-Kashmir movement, anti-Kashmir or Indian position on Kashmir uh, against the Indian army, etc. That's nothing to do with LGBTQ. So now what you are doing is you're turning a group into a weapon against the nation state. And that's the issue we don't, we don't like. Sir, it's a pleasure talking to you. Sir, my question is to you that since we are seeing in the present uh, geopolitical uh, scenario that the countries, especially in particular, the India is being targeted and is being the victim of that, that IITs and IIMs, uh, as you highlighted, is being targeted because there the intellectual discourse takes place. Sir, what has been the response of the government of India since, as you have highlighted in your book, so there have been the various evidences which you have provided that, uh, because these are the national security threat for the our country now, because it's, it's hard to imagine that the war is now going to be fought on the grounds and boots putting on the ground. Because in the scenario, 
we look at the uh, in the world of artificial intelligence cyber security and threat so sir what has been the response of government of india in this regard has there been any initiative taken because so, it ultimately compromises the national security no, i understand you repeat but i understand the point the, what's the government response i understand the point so the book is very new we owe we owe them some time to reflect i brought it to their attention they recognize that these are issues they have to study let's see let's give them some time but what's discouraging is that they did not proactively do anything like i have done it is their job is the job of the culture ministry they failed the hrd ministry they failed the ministry of external affairs they failed the niti aayog people they failed the national security people they failed it is the job of all these people to be doing this kind of research not one man alone at the age of 72 with a, a wonderful co-author having to do this by myself it is the job of all these sarkari people and so shame on them that they haven't done it or supported me although i have approached them on many times now let's see that the book is out so the reason i produced the book is i said you know i've had it trying to go to the authorities for help whether it is academic people whether it is uh, industrialists i've been to the i've been to uh, 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 anand mahindra's office in mumbai and mentioned this to him before he funded harvard i've been twice to ajay piramal's office in the piramal tower so it's not like i haven't tried to talk to them privately i have and i've talked to any number of people in uh, uh, you know in the indian government i knew the i knew rajiv kumar the vice chairman of niti aayog who left recently i knew him he was a college friend from st stephen's college so i have tried all that so i'm writing this book because i said okay enough is enough i'm going to take the matter to the public so i'm taking the matter to the public i want all of you guys to get a copy of this to show that you are backing it to read even if you read one or two chapters talk about it be part of our movement send the message that this matters and the authorities have to take it seriously you have highlighted the term cancel culture uh, and also the court legalize it but uh, what about the view of a ban hijab uh if ban then it's also the cancel of culture uh, of one well that's a loaded question i won't uh, i'm not an expert on that i will just tell you that in iran they're taking the opposite view in iran the women are going out to on the street saying we don't want you to impose the hijab on us so they're taking the opposite point of view so i honestly don't know all the facts and i want to only comment where i've done my research and i think this is a very lively what i'm glad to note is that in india this is a lively debate nobody is stopping you i think the debate is lively nobody is cancelled those who are for hijab or those who are against hijab in the public discourse i don't think there is anything stopping well you. if i just may add it's a slight nuance actually the college board in karnataka is only saying you can't wear the hijab in a classroom not on campus you can wear it on campus you can wear it in society no one is stopping you from wearing hijab only in a secular environment like for example in the military the police force or where the uniform takes primacy so this is not about cancelling the hijab as a cultural construct it is only to uphold another cultural construct which is uniformity and secularism that's all we are exploring a lot many things uh, we are getting into wikis we are getting into our new platforms but when we see the origination or the control of that particular place 
So for example, we are having very good work in some particular things. We are getting into search engine optimization. We are getting articles and top search engines, but we are using the server as the AWS. That's the Amazon server. What are the search engines that we are coming on top? Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, all originate in the United States. They have the control to switch on and off. Some uh, particular uh, giant comes to know about particular things that's coming up. Uh, they are going to sponsor heavy vendetta. But there are multiple concerns, not just that, for example, uh, there was a platform called Koo that came in. Uh, what is your question? I so, know about that platform. What yes, you're saying, My I've written 500 page book on artificial intelligence on this. So I already know all this, but what's your question? So my question is that are we, uh, should we accept defeat in this particular aspect? Because I don't see any, uh, like Niti Aayog had that server, but that server is nowhere, which can be used for the Indian websites. So what is the way out or do we have to just accept it how it is? So first of all, the issue is not server. The issue is not server, which is piece of hardware. It is not the location of the server. It doesn't matter. This is the AI software who controls the AI software and the machine learning and the algorithms. And that is where India supplies the manpower. We supply the engineers, the software developers to work for the foreign countries. And those people own the technology and the intellectual property rights. There was a lawyer here from a uh, uh, legal person. So the problem which I mentioned in my AI book is that we are proud that we have a large army of AI people and software people, but we do not own the intellectual property rights that they produce because they're employees working for a foreign country. So as long as that remains the business model that we have labor, we are hire selling labor, and they own the work, the intellectual property produced, we will continue having this. And this whole issue that we should own the intellectual property and not just a, a wage arbitrage, a margin on their hourly rate. And I mentioned this in my artificial intelligence book. That's where you should read that and you will see my views on how to solve the problem. Jai Shri Ram sir, my question to you is, our late, our late CDS, Jitin uh, Bipin Rawat sir has talked about 2.5 front in which point five friend refers to internal enemies of India. How, sir, what do you, what are your views on how should citizens of India should deal with them and what is the government doing about this? So that point five, which I think is bigger than the other two, in my opinion, uh, is the sub subject of this. This is what breaking India 2.0 is that particular point five. So I, I feel that the first thing we haven't had is a proper diagnosis. So this book is giving you a proper diagnosis. If you have a disease and you're, you've only understood the symptoms and you have not gone to the root cause, then you cannot solve the problem. So this book gives you a diagnosis of the disease going deep inside where is this problem coming from and, the, and then finding who's funding it. And then those are the people you have to talk to. And the, the government has to stop hiring those kind of uh, consultants and the in industries have to stop funding those kind of people. So the solutions are there. And the public needs to become more aware and talk more about it. And that's what I would, why I would like you to read this book. Uh, good evening, thanks, sir. Uh, what is your take on movies like Adi Purush being made? Should our epics remain in books only, or should they come out? Uh... So your question is, what about movies that misrepresent Indian culture? And should sh they be reproduced for uh, the youth, or should they remain in books only for us to interpret? characters in our own uh, understanding. No, so the thing is that the part of the narrative that we are fighting is through popular culture. There was a time before there were any movies and all that, there was theater. 
So there was Ramayan, there was all these Natashastra, there were all these theater, uh, which were part of the popular culture. So now you have electronic media to do that. So the rules are still the same. You should, you should, those who are interested in the Indian grand narrative should not limit themselves to scholarship and books. You should also get into the popular culture. You should create your own alternative to Netflix. You should create that. I mean, we have got people worth 100 billion. They should put their money into Indian civilization. Some of these people should fund the Vedic liberal arts. They should fund the Vedic version of Netflix. They got the money and they should be doing this. We don't even have an Indian equivalent of Al Jazeera or BBC or Fox News. I mean, Republic TV, fine, it's okay. But, you know, there is nothing, it's not the, or not the same stature internationally. And it's not a full service channel because if you look at Al Jazeera, you get all the topics in the world, whether it's cricket, whatever it is, they are, they are giving you full service media company. We don't have that kind of a thing promoting our civilization in that direct way. So narrative is being controlled by those who have the economic power. You talked about how, uh, you know, people aren't ready to take it up. You went to Pyramid and they wouldn't take it up. So what is, uh, how, and all the elites and all the academicians, all of them, they are all going towards the left because there seems to be some sort of vested interest, whether it is China, whether it is, you know, people with the money on the left who are coming here and doing this. So what is, uh, according to you, what really is the... Uh, solution is because you said they, they wouldn't listen. Um, okay. yeah, like you said, there's so money. She's saying, how is it that all the money is ending up powering the intellectual ideas of the left and not the right? Yeah. That's so what she's it, yeah. this is an issue we've also. So really, it's a very important question, but you need to answer it. Uh, say it very clearly. I will restate it the way I understand it. Why are billionaires who made their money in capitalism, which is free market capitalism, funding the left, which will actually dismantle capitalism. That is the question. Why would capitalists fund Marxists who are going to kill capitalism? That's a very big problem. The conclusion chapter in this book answers that. And I want you to read it rather than telling you the story. Uh, my name is Sunit Verma. I'm in the Department of Psychology. I have worked with Rajiv Ji for long years. I have read all his works except this. And uh, two are very brief comments and, uh, and a question. One is that when you talk about LB, uh, GTQ, in India, uh, Rajiv Ji's talk has come recently on YouTube, but in India, this was dealt with traditionally. These people were not part of the mainstream and they were looked after by the rulers. They were artisans, they said. Uh, the hijab issue. It is unfair because it bans the hijab in the classroom, but not the kada or any other symbols, any other religious symbols. So it is unfair. My question. This debating is important and necessary. Uh, uh, after few years or a couple of years after being different came out, the US intellectual tank got together and they uh, tried to corner you. And we need something similar to support your work. Uh, I'm working almost entirely on my own 
Indian ideas on psychology is all that I teach. My students are sitting here for 20 years now. I know. We have a specialization in Indian psychology. My uh, question is that Purpaksh, Uttarpaksh is essential. But the next step is, as Dr. Kundan Singh says, binaries, us and the other, how to transcend, transcend and transform so that we can look at each other as one. That is my question. So, Purva Paksha, Uttar Paksha is our system. And then after the Uttar Paksha, it depends on the idea of transcending is something mutual. It's not something I go, because if I say here is the transcending, then I'm trying to convert him. That's not fair. So that's a mutual process that I critique you, you critique me. We're discussing, debating, how can we come together and transcend our differences? And that requires partnership between both sides. And that is exactly the final goal we should have. But we need collaborators on the other side. And I'm getting collaborators. You know, I have two forwards one by a very eminent Indian professor and one by a very eminent American professor, two forwards. And the reason is that I want to collaborate with the Americans precisely so we can transcend. Thank you very much for the question. Sunit Verma is a dear old friend. He's a head of psychology in this Delhi University. He, as he said, he's read all my books, he's supported me. He's brought me into the psychology department for any number of conferences and talks and workshops. And I'm, very glad that I have friends like that. Thank you very much. Um, I just um, uh, like, uh, want to respond to that a little on the idea of transcending, because that's really, really intriguing. And there we are actually, I believe, we are actually trapped in this battle of isms. When we are talking about transcending, there are two sides, us and them. And this is the whole problem of Marxist dialectics. And when we move to Chinese, since I am from the Chinese uh, department, uh, move to the Chinese, they talk about yin-yang philosophy, which actually does, there are two opposites, but they complement each other. We, uh, when we look from our philosophy, there is no other. So here, I think uh, we need to go to our philosophy to find, because we don't have the concept of other, because there is this whole, there is no concept of anti-God. When we do not have anti-God, there is no concept of uh, what we say, Abheda principle, where Vasudaiva Kutumbakam concept comes from. So there is the whole space of our own argument. So I think we need to explore this to really find the answer, which is the Indian way, Indian path, not the Chinese construct, not the Marxist, that is Western construct, but to have an Indian way. On uh, behalf of Historical India and uh, Bharat Book Club, I would like to express my heartfelt gratitude to Sri Rajiv Malhotra for delivering such a stirring address on his new launched book, Snakes in the Ganga. The book is not to be seen as a ship, but a shore. The ripples that it can set in motion are sure to open avenues for further research and intellectual activity on such significant themes. These civilizational concerns are by no means limited to India. There are many in West itself who are slowly becoming conscious of the dangers posed by this unholy alliance of postmodern and Marxist thought systems. The degrading quality of education systems is a global reality. 
activism is increasingly becoming an easy weapon to foremost uh, to foment uh, unrest and dismantle the social and cultural fabric of a nation it is a solemn duty to ask ourselves a question can we future academics take inspiration from rajiv ji and expand and enhance his his line of thinking to that extent we are extremely grateful towards the infinity foundation for supporting this event the co-author vijaya vishwanathan has also played a remarkable role in bringing this significant project to fruition and we express our gratitude to her for her contributions we would also like to thank professor alka chavla pic clc for lucidly capturing the significance of such dis discussions on india's history and in her introductory remarks we are grateful to eminent journalist sri rahul shivshankar for moderating this session in such a seamless manner it was an enriching experience listening to this conversation and i am sure those seated in the audience have several takeaways from this enlightening discussion thanks are due to dr vikas verma for being such an excellent guide for all the members of historical india we also thank ajay ji for always guiding us throughout our plan of action thanks also to the campus law center and especially dr seema singh for this joint venture and helping organize this event with such immaculate efficiency all the volunteers of historical india and bharat book club deserves plaudits for their unrelenting efforts in making this event a success last but not the least we are extraordinarily grateful to the to you the audience for the for gracing this occasion and making this a memorable evening for everyone involved once again thank you all and wishing everyone